Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, we have Ian Gatt back with us. Ian is, of course, the head of performance services and lead physio for GB Boxing, and he's also the physio and cut man for Anthony Joshua. As you may have seen from social media or on our website, we have a two-part webinar series being taught by Ian, launching on the 26th of October. It's a two-part webinar, including Q&As, and the first webinar will be focused on non-traumatic hand and wrist injuries on the 26th of October, and the second event will be focused on traumatic hand and wrist injuries on the 25th of January. If you sign up to the events, you'll also have access to the recordings of the webinars online, just in case you miss the live events. But if you're interested in developing clinically in these areas, then sign up before the 26th of October, and if you purchase both events together then you'll save some money, which is always nice. Today's episode will largely be myself and Ian discussing non-traumatic hand and wrist injuries ahead of his first event with us on the 26th of October. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup, and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Just before we start today's episode, I just want to really quickly draw attention to the interactive personal development platform run by Dan Howes, a former guest, and Collaborate Sports. The purpose of the interactive personal development platform is to make mentorship affordable to developing practitioners. In mid-October, the next cohort of mentees commence their 10-month group mentorship program, focusing on both S&C technical skill development and non-technical skill development. The program focuses on a principle-based approach to real-world practice, learning from other coaches in the group, and having access to Dan as a mentor for 10 months. Places for this IPD are limited, with only a few left, so please visit collaboratesports.com forward slash the IPD to read more or contact Dan himself with questions to book onto the course. Right then, it's time for today's episode. Here is our second conversation between myself, Andy McDonald, and today's returning guest, Ian Gatt. Ian, welcome back to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's good to have you back on. Uh, thanks, Andy. Thanks for having us. So, you know, we had you on uh, an earlier episode where we spoke more broadly about how performance is managed and supported in elite boxing in your environment. But today we'll go kind of more into the hand and wrist shortly as today's topic. Just in case this is someone's first encounter with you, could you talk about maybe your background and kind of bring people up to speed? Yeah, um, I'm a sports physiotherapist, been a sports physiotherapist really for over 20 years and I'd say 12 plus of those years have been working with boxing and say probably the last three years I've been head of performance services for them. But within that remit, there's obviously been a spectrum of injuries which um, boxers can get. I think sometimes people uh, consider boxers only get injuries in certain areas, but boxers get injuries everywhere. But the reality is the upper limb is the predominance and hands and wrists are our bread and butter. Yeah. 
And what what kind of things have you got going on currently? And you know, as a bit of a as a bit of an update as a returning guest, what kind of you know uh, current or future commitments do you have in sport? Well, you, you found me really on a on an interesting period because we've literally just finished the the Olympic Games, and boxing finished in the uh, second in the medal table, uh, taking home six medals. Two gold, two silver, two bronze. Uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, performance by everybody. You know, the boxers, the support staff, the coaches, everybody really worked fantastically together at the games. But, you know, it's, it's beyond the games. It's the five years leading into these games, including the period of COVID. And, uh, you know, just about we having finished these games, really, um, I'm working with Anthony Joshua as we record now, um, he's fighting next week um, in uh, in Tottenham uh, Stadium down in London. So, you know, I'm, I'm in Sheffield today, but next week we'll be in London. <laughs> yeah, so no doubt that's, your, uh, that's obviously a major focus at the moment. So um, in terms of kind of getting into the meat and gravy of today's episode and talking about the sporting hand and wrist, what... What led you into this as, you know, becoming an expert on this side of the injuries? Obviously boxing, but like what was the, I guess, what was your evolution as a practitioner with this as an interest? Yeah, I think, you know, like happens with with, with many physios probably when they work with a specific sports, it comes with the territory. I think before boxing, um, I did loads of different sports. Obviously, I've picked up all the different areas. The, the two years before joining boxing, I was working with volleyball and you know, you do get traumatic hand and wrist injuries. Obviously, you've got that predominance of the ankles. You've got the overuse of the knees, you know, with the patella tendinopathies. But they do get hand and wrist injuries. But even though they did get them at the time, I wasn't in that sort of spectrum or mindset of, you know, hands and wrists are important because you obviously you think what are they the most uh, common injuries are actually the ones that are going to keep them the most away, the most severe. But when I joined boxing, I realized straight away the hands and wrists are those areas. So I myself had to upskill myself. And in the process of upskilling myself, I realized that there was nothing out there. As in, you know, when I started 12 years ago, there wasn't pretty much anything around hands and wrists. You had to like really look um, in different corners. I think as I kept on upskilling myself, probably I'd say four or five years into my career with boxing, I felt that as I started being asked by other sports to provide expertise, I realized that, you know, there was there was a hunger, there was a bit of a niche also in that area. And I think over the years of I've pushed myself in that area um, to help other practitioners and other sports to help other athletes. So within the English Institute of Sport, I am a, a technical lead or an, a, a consultant on hands and wrists. So everybody who's got hands and wrist problems um, that need further consultation, they'll come to me. Uh, within my own sport, obviously, I provide their expertise. And even outside of the Olympic setups, whether it's rugby, whether it is tennis, whether it is a goalkeeper in football, I've had the privilege to see lots of different and complex cases. And I think in their own complexity, I think um, it's probably allowed me to provide a simple approach to things, um, you know, because like anything else, when something is chronic or something is complex, you know, everything seems like it's a horrible picture. 
So for me, it was always about how can you simplify things and take things in a very methodological approach. You mean like if I reflect on practicing in two countries, in the UK, obviously the NHS exists and I was more than welcoming as a clinician to let hand and wrist patients admittedly um, slide into the NHS uh, to see hand and wrist specialists there for rehab. And in America, in a different way, it's not too different in the sense that in a say private practice, it's very common for there to be a, you know, half the clinician might be physios or physical therapists here. And then occupational therapists will take pretty much everything below the elbow. Once you go beneath, you know, by classic American sports, like a UCL for baseball, once you go more distal than that to the hand, it tends to go to the other half of the room with occupational therapy. How, what, what's like the kind of, maybe just from the UK alone, what's the current educational pathway or how can people currently develop on the hand and wrist? Because I think it's one of those things that in the UK and America, it's very easy for it to be the sort of uh, the weak region of a clinician's knowledge for those reasons. You, you probably, you know, uh, hit the nail on the head really with you've got your occupational therapists. Obviously, they, they focus in those areas, but a lot of times I think, you know, there, there's probably a traditional route which takes them more towards your NHS type injuries, more like non-sporting injuries. So yes, you can have traumatic, yes, you can have overuse, but I think that sporting acumen doesn't really exist. Uh, you've got hand therapists, so you've got physios that can specialize to particular routes, um, becoming more specialized in hand therapists. Uh, and, and again, you probably, they follow more of that, that private practice NHS element of things and then in sports you've got sports physiotherapists and they probably are good in all the other areas and it's the hand and wrist which misses them so you've got lots of fantastic practitioners either working in hand and wrist but you know missing that sporting element or physios in sports that miss the hand element and I think what I've managed to do probably is bridge that gap by uh, by this this cussing and describing the injuries that happen in sports there's a lot of crossover with the injuries that happen in sports in the overuse non-traumatic injuries that can happen in your day-to-day from your non-sporting or your sub-elite to put it this way i think what i tried i've probably managed to bring also is maybe a simplistic recipe also like you know no matter the type of injury consider the anatomy, consider the biomechanics, but try and simplify things, you know, rather than, you know, get lost into the pathology is the consideration around function and the consideration around, you know, the, the history, the consideration around what really is, is the person telling you. And, you know, the, the history for me becomes a very important component to it. So I think it's, you know, there are routes to specialize. And obviously, you know, hopefully people follow the, the uh, educational um, material that I tend to provide. And obviously, I know that we, we've put together two fantastic webinars, hopefully that people can, can get even more education uh, around these areas. Um, but there are traditional routes. And then there are obviously these areas, which can help uh, people want to specialize a bit more. Yeah, and we'll, we'll obviously get onto the webinar and course talk in a second. But um, I thought it was interesting as you know, we polled on our social media whether people feel comfortable and competent treating the hand and wrist as a clinician and 81% of people said no. And I think talking about specializing, I think, and, and everyone's guilty of it to some extent probably, but it's very easy to become a convenient specialist. And what I mean by that is 
you have an interest in say ACLs classically or something, you know, one of the big rocks clinically and you like ACLs, you know about ACLs. So it's a comfort point to keep consuming more interest, you know, more topic and more education on ACLs when you, so you kind of become very good at certain things. And then, you know, like in any context, people don't always want to uh, work on the side of their knowledge that's less, maybe less comfortable. And I'll put my hand up and I'll say, I belong to that camp as well. But one, I, I found that interesting. I was going to say, the one thing is that, you know, I urge people not to think about the hand and wrist as, a, as an area of speciality. You know, nobody thinks about the ankle as an area of speciality. And, you know, they're very much biomechanical, have certain similarities. It's good to have people that specialize in those areas, you know, like myself, taking it a step a step forward so that you can feed that information. And, you know, when there's complex things which maybe um, they're struggling with, they've got somebody to, to get a second opinion about, ask questions or refer. But if, if somebody learns the... Um, learns the ropes to, to use a boxing expression just enough so that they can feel comfortable you know they learn okay simple anatomy simple biomechanics and how to approach it that's really what you need to do you know you don't need to become you know go down the route of becoming a hand therapist to see a hand and wrist or an occupational therapist no if you're a therapist that sees backs necks shoulders ankles you know the way i try and provide information is for somebody just to to have an add-on you know, it's not to create um, a course that has five modules that you have to pass an examination at the end to get a certification. It's giving people enough information to then take away with and build on that already existing knowledge from other areas. So that's, I think it is important because, as you said, you know, if the polls said 81% feel they're not comfortable, the 81% sometimes uh, might be fearful that, yeah, you know, it's going to be a lot of information for me to upskill and it shouldn't feel like that. Yeah. So if, I mean, hopefully the person listening that might belong to that same camp as me, the 81%, um, knowing that they maybe need to uh, bring their comfort level up and just get up to speed on this area. Um, can you talk us through maybe the the format of the, the webinar series that we're going to host with you? Yeah, so the the way we've sort of structured this series is we're going to have two webinars. Um, uh, one we'll do um, in the in the autumn period, and then the other one we'll do in, in the beginning of next year in January. Um, we've divided them into two one-hour webinars, so you've got four to five minutes of me talking away, um, and then hopefully you know there's time for people to ask questions. And I know these will be recorded, so they'll be available. One will be non-traumatic uh, hand and wrist injuries, and the other one will be traumatic. Uh, the first one will be non-traumatic. And although we class it as non-traumatic, so the reason we've, we've named them like that is traumatic is very easy to think. You know, you've got that injury, you've got that sudden onset. Now, with non-traumatic injuries, there's going to be two types of things which I'd like to almost um, mention. So you've got the... Uh, I'd say the overuse injuries that you know somebody presents, but they don't know the mechanism of injury. So the reality is there is some form of trauma, but it is very much at a lower level than the one-off. Um, so I don't want people to feel that the title um, you know misleads. But then equally with that, whether you work in sports or not, there are certain things for us to consider, certain red flags. You know whether it is um, some some um, uh, some ganglion. Um, and again, you know, is that a ganglion or is some far, some form of uh, 
cancer um, that's um, some malignancy in the region. And that's one of the things, obviously, I'll talk about, you know, red flags. And equally within the spectrum of that webinar, it's mentioning, you know, that, again, you're not going to be there expecting that a big percentage of people walking through the door are going to have that. Uh, hopefully not. It depends where you are in the world. So there's going to be the spectrum. Obviously, with the uh, non-traumatic injuries, we'll talk about um, things like TFCC injuries, you know, that overuse elements of things, tendinopathies, which fall into that bracket. Uh, we'll even talk about, even though scaphoid fractures, we tend to talk more in the traumatic. There's a non-traumatic element of it, you know, your stress stress fractures, starting with a stress reaction. Um, hopefully, you pick it up at a stress reaction level and you can calm it down before actually it becomes a fracture. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes if the fracture um, comes on, and it is actually as, a, as an obvious mechanism. So we'll talk about these these things. And to help people also, we'll try and map it in such a way that, you know, rather than just picking up, you know, injuries at random, try and, you know, have a little map. So what are the injuries that happen on the ulnar side, on the radial side, um, dorsal voral, a bit more central, just so that that little mapping helps a little bit when you are approaching your examination. But then, although we'll be talking about things which you'd want to diagnose, it's important to take a step back and think a little bit about the the function. So beyond the element of um, what it could be, you know, somebody presents with you know a scan and says you've got this, doesn't necessarily mean that their symptom symptoms are definitely coming from those areas. Same as we see in other regions of the of the anatomy, you know. Mm-hmm. The My back, back is one. Or, the back yeah. is, is is one of the biggest ones where you talk about the back pain. I mean, I've seen people sometimes. You know, the, you do a scan. They've got something which is on the opposite side of where they have the the problem. However, you need to consider in the spectrum of things whether biomechanically that is influencing the other side. So yeah. So hopefully, what we'll try and do is is help people so that you know, if I'm sitting down and I'm talking with a um, with a client or an athlete. Um, and they say, I've had a sudden episode. Well, you know, hopefully we'll cover the types of injuries that you could get um, in the second episode. But the first episode will be more about those those occult or those, well, I can't remember, and it started to get a bit painful uh, type injuries or type conditions also because there's a couple of things for us um, to think about. Do you kind of, you know, just thinking clinically, one of the more common times you'll see a hand and wrist regional symptom will be like a ridiculous type profile do you cover that stuff in the uh, in the webinar itself or is that something that you see more as like the bread and butter education that somebody should have coming into it anyway yeah i mean obviously and and we we, will touch base on a few things but as you can imagine in 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 two by one hours you know we'll, we'll we'll give enough information for people to walk away with some nice golden nuggets but um, you know, if, if if you wanted to really um, dwell dwell into a bit more the hand and wrist, probably you'd need you'd need a day. And obviously, I do separate courses and do different bits and bobs, as people might probably know. Um, so you need a bit more of that information. Now, I wouldn't expect people to just go away and start reading lots of things because the problem is you could you could end up reading things which could be useful and things which you know just take you down uh, a rabbit hole because 
even you know i mentioned the word biomechanics a couple of times <laughs> you could get really lost i mean i'm doing a phd in risk biomechanics and if you go down the sports engineering papers around the wrist you know you could literally go down in areas where you don't even know how that links clinically so I think what I try and do is obviously where possible simplify things so that people understand that construct. But you know, we'll cover certain things, but you can't cover a lot of things in that short period of time. But hopefully the people that join us live they can ask, you know, certain questions, which you know we will be more than happy to answer. Yeah. And just for listeners' benefit, we'll we'll host a a QA on the live version. So um I'll be on the the call directing that. Um, I just want to kind of park as much value in this episode as possible, um, as well as obviously for for the people that sign up to the webinar. But this is a bit of a broad question, but have you got any kind of tips to clinicians on treating the hand and wrist based on maybe what you've seen as common kind of clinical skill or clinical knowledge deficits? You know, what might be some low-hanging fruit clinically that people could um, find benefiting knowing now? Well, I suppose the first thing is, you know, which we will definitely cover in these two episodes is knowing your common conditions. Um, and also we'll chuck in there a couple of probably rare things that you might not come across just to, 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 to help out a bit. But it's having that and having that map, as I said, you know, like, you know, if you get a decurbance, it's going to be on the right side. If you're getting TFTC, it's going to be on the ulnar side. Um, and what is the sort of the type of um, uh, pain uh, provocation sort of uh, movements that you can get from that i think that's always useful to have because whenever you approach anything i mean you know the people out there who hopefully they're really good at shoulders or knees surely when they approach that they're going to have that at the back of their, their 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 head the other thing for me you know with the hand and wrist is understanding function um because if you if you know what the function of the hand and wrist is you know what what it, it is meant to do and you've got the right tools to assess it, then that already can give you a lot of information beyond the sort of the diagnostics of it could be a TFCC, it could be a scaphoid fracture, um, is the severity. So, you know, if, for example, you are suspecting a scaphoid fracture and somebody can do um, push-ups uh, in infinitum, that's probably taking a little bit away from, yeah, maybe it's not a fracture or if it is it's definitely not you know highly symptomatic versus somebody who the moment they just put their hand on something with little um weight bearing then it's quite painful so again it's thinking about the function um and so there are certain things that we we, we tend to talk about around objectivity and we will talk about those things in the webinars to help people um and then sometimes you know it's good to think outside the box but the first thing is is asking what can you do and what can't you do and then trying to replicate certain things in clinical practice and the main thing is it may help you or not in your diagnosis but definitely will help with your prognosis because when you're talking about function that's where people get a bit lost with the hands and wrist you know we over focus on the scans we over focus on the diagnosis um, six months down the line, people are scratching their heads, thinking about injections and thinking about uh, maybe reoperations if they already had one operation. And I've found sometimes just by doing the simplest of tests, just to look at function, you can literally make people believe that you know you've got nothing, and that's the reality. You know, if it's useless trying to think what there is a lot underneath the hood if your function is really good. If somebody tells you, and this I had this recently. Um, 
you know, my hand is really good. It's only painful when I clap. That's one of the things I got. Only painful when I clap. Well, that tells you um, there is something there. And I'm not going to take away the fact that, you know, you want to clap. So a couple of things. It's only one thing which is painful. So great. And then the other thing is, all right, we can start thinking about how are they clapping? What's the intensity they can clap? I'm using a very simple example here. But a lot of times you get that with people who say, yeah, it's only painful when I do that. And we try, we get lost too much in the diagnostic element of things, try and tell them, well, anatomically, that's what, that's what it is. But you find that the function is really good. But you need to know how to assess it. I think that's that's probably my bottom line. And that helps definitely in the way one approaches um, a clinical assessment of hands and wrists. You know, hearing you speak, people will be really, you know, say you were comparing a knee or an ankle, clinicians listening will be very aware of the overlap in the sort of rehab frameworks or the principles of how those injuries prognostically improve and how you rehab them. Uh, And especially in a sports context, how, and I've no doubt that's the same with the hand, but can you maybe share some examples of maybe how you assess the athletic demands of the hand and wrist? Because I think it's one of those areas where people will probably credit that it's, there's going to be ideal, you know, ideological overlap with other parts of the body. But if it's an area they've got less exposure to treating, the examples on the forefront of their mind might just be lacking a tiny bit. Yeah. So, you know, one of, one of the things which I think is, is brilliant is, you know, there's a, you can use a hand grip dynamometer to measure strength. And, you know, although you're measuring strength um, because it's peak force, really, so you're measuring the, the, the highest amount you can do. And there are two ways of doing it, uh, which you find in the literature. You can either do out of three and you find the mean, or you can do out of three and you find the max. Um, it depends how you want to look at it. I tend to use the max because I'm really interested in how much they can squeeze and how many, how much symptoms um, do they get with it. So rather than strength in itself, I'm looking for function. So can you make a power grip, which is one of the elements um, of the hand? You know, there's lots of grips at the hands and wrists, but you know, power grip is one of them. And so if you know that they can do that, and that means that obviously there's a lot of pressure going into the bones, uh, into the joints, it's already telling you that if they can squeeze and they can ex- get exactly the same number compared to the opposite side or roughly similar, and they have no symptoms, that's already really good. The next step from there for me is, you know, uh, we are looking at loading, is then you can load them onto a stable surface. And again, you can you can do it just by um, eyeballing it. You know, you put um, both hands on a, on, a, on a clinical couch, for example, or a table. You put more weight, you put less weight, you put one hand, you do a push-up. So you can do that. But, you know, if like me, you like numbers and you'd be a little bit more objective, you can either use dynamometers themselves, where sometimes you can just flip one one around and you do what is known as the push-off test, where you put it um, behind you and then you push off and it gives you a number. Or you can do a weight-bearing scale test, where you have literally um, a scale which you probably have at home, which costs nothing, where you can weigh yourself. You put it on the table, you put the hand onto scale and you put your body weight on it and the nice thing it can gives you the difference so those two examples for example two two tests straight away can tell you how much load can someone put into that so for me if those two two tests are really good then you can interpret into that progression towards the sport or the activities that they can do 
So, for example, if I've got a boxer, you know, the ability to make a fist becomes really important because then, you know, if if it's down by 50%, last thing I want them to do is to hit a bag. If when they squeeze, maybe there's only 10% difference, then their ability to hit a bag becomes better. If you've got a diver and they're struggling with their entry and, you know, they do a squeeze, 100%, no issues, but then they go on the weight-bearing scale test, which is a bit more um, loading, and it's down, then you know that obviously there's something to consider. And again, I've used those in a standing position, but we have to remember a diver actually is upside down with the hands there. So it could be that, yeah, you do them in a standing, and then you have to do them in a handstand position where they actually you get them in a, in a way that they can put their hand, one on the block, for example, and the other hand on the scale, and you see how much they're loading. So there are tools available, and I think, and don't get me wrong, yeah, we can start talking about range of motion and the way you can measure, but I've left that range of motion out, mainly because I thought it's easier just to talk a little bit about um, loading and the ability of the hand and wrist to load. Same as you're doing with an ankle, is it? Can you do a knee-to-wall test? Can you do calf raises? Um, can you hop? on on uh, on the spot can you hop for distance can you hop for height um it's not much dissimilar on the hand obviously you're not going to get them hopping on the hand unless you know it's something that they have to do but there are different ways of doing it and there are different ways of measuring too uh, and getting numbers which can be used towards that prognosis help with the diagnosis too but also um as you are progressing it, it's good to fall into something because you know three weeks down the line, six weeks down the line, are they getting better, yes or no? Well, they might tell you, I don't feel I'm getting better. Or they might say, I feel I'm getting better. But then at least you've got something objective alongside where maybe the symptoms have not got better, but the strength has got better or their pain has decreased. So it's important to have something, in my opinion, objective to go together with the function as you are then increasing certain activities, be it athletic or non-athletic. No, I love that. And I think your answer then was really helpful. It was it was nice to get some uh you know, some tangible ideas of things that you do and ways that you do things. And I think I think for me those would be like the nuggets that I I'll take home, you know, from the content in terms of like these are the ideas that I just don't have in the forefront of my mind when I manage a patient in this anatomical region. Um and it's easy to have that library in other areas just by exposure and volume. So. Yeah, and, and that's it. I mean, the other areas is a bit more exposure. And that's a good word that you've used there because, you know, you talk about the ankles, you talk about knees, you talk about shoulders and backs. There's, you know, there's, there's always more information coming out, but at least there's a bit of a template and people sort of can, can fall back on those templates. And certain tests have been used forever and maybe, you know, they've reinvented the wheel a little bit, or actually they've just rejiggled the old things in, in, a, in, a, in a classier format. Um, but a lot of times you've got tools, is it? I mean, you think about the ankle, the knee-to-wall used to be using an inclinometer at first, and then they validated the knee-to-wall using a tape measure. So actually it's quicker and faster, but you can still use an inclinometer. Same with the hand and wrist, you know. Um, you can use inclinometers if you want to measure range of motion and you can walk away from goniometer same as we've done with the ankle because loading an ankle is better than doing range of motion in a non-weighted bearing position because the ankle is a weight bearing um so with the hand and wrist you, yeah you're not going to put them um with the hand on the floor but there are different ways of doing one is the overpressure that you can create 
and you can use inclinometers to measure. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can actually do something similar to a knee to wall, which is, you know, having the hand and loading it onto a table and then measuring that angle. So, you know, again, it's, it's thinking about what are you trying to achieve in the context of durability. If somebody tells you it's painful when I weight bear, and especially when I go down, you want to try and get that range in that position, not in a non-weight buried position away from it, because you may find there's no difference um, and it doesn't help you. So it's, I think it's the knowing what tests are available, what tools are available, and then filtering that into the practice. And that's hopefully what we try and do with the diverse education we try and do around the hand and wrist is get people a bit more aware um, of what things are available. A lot of things we have probably created because there wasn't. Um, and we've done research also on certain things to, to help, you know, in the, in the vacancy of those things. Um, but, you know, the main thing for me is, is trying to create that awareness um, uh, f- for people to sort of like really then make their own into their own practice. I mean, I think you sharing things that experientially you've had to be creative and, and, you know, problem solve yourself is useful because it's very easy via Instagram to go on and see, you know, a million and one different uh, knee exercises or plyometric drills or agility movements. You know, the list goes on. I, you know, I might be looking in the wrong place, but I haven't seen many hand and wrist exercises being shared across Instagram. So I think even just, it's just broadening that exercise library is, is useful because it's, it's so easy to consume ideas elsewhere. They're just put in front of you and you probably know an exercise prescribe an exercise that you've seen before and you've got no idea where you saw it because inadvertently you just consume this stuff online and on instagram etc on a daily basis probably so i think that's that's really valuable yeah and i think it, it, it is interesting because obviously i think sometimes as therapists we overfocus on the exercise rather than what the exercise is trying to achieve. And the problem with that is, you know, you try and build a thousand exercise library rather than, you know, what is what are you trying to achieve? You know, is it strength, is it endurance, is it this type of movement? And then it's good to have examples of. And I think what I try and do when I try and explain the hands and wrists is rather than go, well, here are 10 exercises that you could use at the hand and wrist, and then people get a bit lost. Um, or I'll give a thousand exercises because you could do a thousand exercises. It's like, well, these are the type of problems you could get. And this is what you, what really the hand and wrist, what you need to think about. Um, and you may actually find that compared to other areas like the shoulder, for example, where there are probably a million exercises. And, you know, we know even from electromyographic studies that, you know, a lot of things don't do what we think they are. And it becomes a myth versus reality situation. I think with, with the hands and wrists, again, you know, there's still a deficit around research. So, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to shoot myself in the foot here. But the reality is that with a lot of conditions, um, you can do a couple of exercises that can actually cater for a lot of conditions because what you're trying to create around the hand and wrist is there's elements of stability in certain areas and then there's element of mobility. So it all depends, obviously, of your findings at the time. Um but definitely there's a big thing about stability um, around the hand and wrist because you think about the main injuries like TFCC, which is a stabilizing structure. You think about the scaphalunate ligament, which is a st- stabilizing structure. The scaphoid gets fractured. The scaphoid is important in 
in biomechanics, obviously, unless, you know, um, it's been treated non-surgically and it's gone nice and stiff and everything has got all stuck, then maybe you think about mobility. But, you know, at least you've got a full understanding that, yeah, it is something that needs mobility. So it's having that element of, okay, you know what um, I'm looking at, I know what really I'm, I'm trying to achieve here. And then it's having a few ideas of these type of exercises the nice thing with hands and wrist also, um, you, you can play with lots of little tools and lots of colorful tools. But the bottom line is, you know, it's not about just using a bit of putty and a bit of bands and, you know, fancy uh, colored ones, which, you know, I do use myself, but actually using proper weights and loathing properly. Um, and in the absence of, you know, finding a gym where they can do it or, you know, them buying certain equipment because you know that type of equipment the 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 lighter equipment call it this way um is good for a period of time but then you can't take them to the next level especially if you have an athlete not just an athlete i mean imagine certain you know if you're a builder if you're a roofer if you're sort of somebody who's in a trade and they need that sort of that that proper strength you know giving them a bit of banded exercises even if they're hard bands you know you know not to preclude bands completely but you have to think about the resistance so um you know i'm not trying to sort of discredit bands because bands are really good what i'm saying here is you have to think about the level of resistance and you have to think about how you're progressing that resistance so you need the right equipment and i, I know that because even when i have done courses over the years um you know when i first used to go there you just used to be a few bands there and a bit of putty and they think you know i, I can run a hand and wrist course just talking with that sort of equipment which isn't the case you need proper weights to actually get a proper shift around the hands and wrists no good point um obviously you know the listeners and people who want to do this course can find it on informperformance.com if they click through to the education page um for you personally where's the best place for the listeners to follow you and track what you're up to yeah so um like many i'm on social media so whether it is linkedin under my name ian gatz or you can find me on on instagram or on twitter um so i tend to share um upcoming courses so that people are aware of of things that i'm doing um and obviously because this is going to be um pre-recorded uh, sorry will be recorded um so hopefully people will join the live but you know we'll, we'll keep on sharing this information so that you know people can access it at a later date if required but yeah follow us and obviously you know you've got informed performance here who will obviously be, be hosting uh, these webinars so they will be part of their um of their social platform cool Good stuff. And mate, thank you very much for coming back on the show. And uh, yeah, look forward to going live with you on the 26th of October. Thank you. Thanks, mate. A big thank you to Ian for coming back on the show today and providing us with a sneak peek at some of the content and nuggets that we can expect when he shares his sporting hand and wrist webinar series with us on informperformance.com. Ian's event is, of course, the first one we've announced, but there will be many others. We currently have a number of great practitioners putting stuff together for us. So make sure you follow us on social media. You can find us at Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter. Alternatively, head to InformPerformance.com and join our mailing list. 
We can then send you information as it comes out on new episodes, articles and webinars. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You've been listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.